Welcome back to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This is our special week of coverage in remembrance of the champ, the king of the world, Muhammad Ali. Fight for the prestige, not for me, but to uplift my little brothers who are sleeping in concrete floors today in America. Black people who are living on welfare. Black people who can't eat. Black people who don't know no knowledge of themselves. Black people who don't have no future. I want to win my title and walk down the alleys, sit on the garbage can with the wine heads. I want to walk down the street with the dope addicts, talk to the prostitutes, so I can help a lot of people. Today on the Edge of Sports podcast, we will be talking to Bob Lipsight, the legendary New York Times reporter who covered Muhammad Ali back in 1964 when he was just Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. preparing for his fight against Sonny Liston in Miami. The reason I had been sent to cover that first Liston fight was the Times felt that, as did most everybody else, that he'd be knocked out in the first round. They didn't want to waste the time of a real reporter. So send the kid from that rewrite. That was me. We will also talk to Bob Lipside about his remembrances of the champ over the course of a 50-plus year relationship. And later in the show, we are going to hear from Kavitha Davidson, sports writer and social commentator, about her thoughts and remembrances of Muhammad Ali, including a discussion of Parkinson's and CTE. But let's get started with the man who wrote the definitive obituary of Muhammad Ali in the New York Times. And truthfully, he was the only choice to write it, Bob Lipsight. You've been associated with Muhammad Ali, I was thinking about this, for, for 55 years almost. I mean, wh- what have the days since his passing been like for you? You know what's interesting, Dave? I've gotten hundreds of emails since the obit ran, and I would say the overwhelming number of them are kind of uh, offering consolation uh, for my grieving process and mentioning that they had you know, spotted him once in an elevator. He had given them a hug from across the room. Um, it's so hard to separate the symbolic political figure, this you know, kind of powerful shaper, in a sense of our times, from this kind of glowing human being who made these incredible little connections uh, with almost everybody that he ever came in contact with. Wow. What was your reaction when when you heard he passed? I mean, it's such a, I find this like, it's been a bizarre uh, period because it's been so many years since we've really heard him and since he's been Ali that at first, his death felt like a, a formality, but the, the, the grief has been so overpowering and the remembrances, it really was like the world stopped. You're, you know, you're right. But it was a combination. On the one hand, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's not dead. You know, the, the memories, the photographs, the legacy is all still there. On the other hand, you know, whatever grieving process there was, you know, it was over a few years ago. He, he hasn't been. Muhammad Ali for some time and um, you know coming to grips with the incredible Greek tragedy Shakespearean I don't know what would you call it irony of um, this most mobile and loquacious man on the planet suddenly struck dumb and twisted into 
an immobile Hulk. You know, it's terrible to even think about it. And that, of course, began to be quite evident 20 years ago at the 96 Olympics, where with that, you know, shaking hand, uh, he lit the torch. The hot wax flowed back, burnt him. He never winced or showed that. But, um, you know, we've, we've seen for some time uh, his retreat from the camera and from the public view until he just kind of became invisible for so many years. I hadn't seen him uh, for several years. And uh, you know, even then, uh, it, was, it was remarkable. I, I would try to ask him a question. He would put his mouth to my ear and mumble something that was absolutely incomprehensible. And his wife from across the room <laughs> would would speak for five minutes and tell me what he had just said. So, I mean, she really became the curator of that legend and not to make fun of that because I thought that the very well-structured paragraph that he could not have written at, at his zenith, you know, attacking Donald Trump <laughs> for uh, Trump's suggestion that... Uh, you know, the government keep all the Muslims out, you know, kind of was, was wonderful. Can, can, can I ask you, um, we talk about this idea of Greek tragedy for me, and I know I'm projecting my own politics onto the tragedy here, but this idea of someone who spoke so eloquently against war finds himself unable to speak his face in expressionless mask being led to George W. Bush, who puts a medal around his neck. And this idea of, like, does Muhammad Ali, A, does he know what's happening right now? B, does he agree with what's happening right now? And C, is there an issue of consent here in terms of him being in the White House and getting this medal from George Bush? You know, that, that, that's a wonderful question. And it also maybe goes to the heart of something you and I have talked about so many times, about Muhammad Ali as this kind of magnetic slate on which we can put, you know, our uh, wishes, hopes, bumper stickers mm-hmm. on. I mean, who really knows? Uh, who really knows, you know, what went on inside, even, for, even from the very beginning? His closest biographer, Tom Hauser, who spent an awful lot of time with him, probably more concentrated time than anybody in the 90s when he was writing that big oral biography, always felt that Ali was uh, stunted emotionally, that you know he probably had reached the level of a 12-year-old. So much of what he did and said was the, you know, the quick study of a, of a somewhat innocent mind, a childlike mind. I mean, he, he was capable of things that we would interpret, but exactly what did they mean? I mean, every time he saw me and, and said, and knowing that I was Jewish, he would say, so what's the difference between a Jew and a canoe? And I would, you know, pretend I didn't know the answer. And he would say, oh, a canoe tips. Well, was this a joke? Was this a way of connecting? Was this a 12-year-old? Was this a way of asserting, you know, his independence from whatever you might want him to be? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the answer really is, yeah, I mean, you and I both wanted him, you know, to rip that medal 
you know, off his neck and stick it in George's face. Yes. <laughs> but he was he he was happy to be in the, in the in the White House. He was happy to be honored, I'm sure. You know, so what did he ever mean at any point? What really makes me crazy right now is this hagiographic pieces running in which he uh, is is described as one of the leading civil rights leaders of his time. Well, you know, that's not quite true. I mean, remember when people were being beaten in the South and dogs set on a water hose, you know, he belongs to the segregationist uh, black Muslims uh, who were trying to make deals with you know, Southern states and the KKK, you know, to carve out black enclaves until the spaceships came down and all but the righteous were killed and they were carried away to a better planet. But, but isn't that, I agree that the hagiographies are nauseating, but isn't like this, what you just described part of what makes him so amazing? I mean, the heavyweight champion of the world joining an organization that called white people devils. I mean, it's, it really, it's like, it would be like uh, Nancy Reagan joining the lesbian Avengers. I mean, it's an amazing <laughs> thing. You know, so good. yeah, thank you. It's thank a good you. one. Thank you. So, so it, that's a, that's to me. And I think, uh, Julian Bond once had this great line where he said like, and he's of course a great civil rights leader. He said, yeah, we weren't big fans of the nation of Islam, but it felt like he was telling white people to go to hell for us. Yeah. And I, and Dick Gregory said the same thing and that's true. And yet he was doing that. And on the other hand, you could also see that because this is a complex and and wonderful and flawed human being, you could also see that this was a kid who had been abused at home, was insecure, who really wanted a father figure, and within this group, uh, found a kind of comfort and solace that he didn't really find, certainly not in white America, and and probably even within his family. So. Um, Part of us wants to say, yeah, man, he was really sticking it to the man back there in the 60s. And, and the other part is, well, he was also a kid who was kind of uh, finding a way of uh, insulating himself from a lot of uh, pain, a lot of things that were going on. But when we look at all the ways athletes over the decades have insulated themselves from pain, you know, and drugs are at the, certainly at the top of that list. Uh, or, or focusing on the next. Uh, event or focusing I mean, on the next uh, event. Uh, right. Training, training hard is another way of you know uh, squelching psychic pain, Tell physical pain. Actually, like telling so, the I mean, U.S. government. have always done that, but yeah. David, let's get back to the point of um, you know that famous day where he said, "I got nothing against them, Viet Cong," and that became one of the banners of the '60s. You were there that day, right? Yeah. And that became a way of signifying what was happening. But at the very beginning of that day, uh, when he was first notified that his draft exemption has been changed to 1A, which made him immediately eligible, the first thing he said, the very first thing that he said was, why me? I'm heavyweight champ. All my tax dollars go to the government. Look at all the tanks and guns and soldiers' helmets uh, that my tax dollars buy. Why draft me? Draft some poor boy from Louisville. So, I mean, that first gut reaction 
was, well, I think it was a very human reaction, and certainly in keeping with being a childlike heavyweight champion of the world, but it really was not, I got nothing against them, Viet Cong. It was not an expression of, you know, solidarity with colored people around the world. See, but that's why um, I, A, love these stories, and B, think that they're, they're the best defense against the hagiographic bullshit that I agree is all over the place, because it does show an evolution of thought, because a few years later he was making lyrical Absolutely. statements calling for solidarity with the darker-skinned people of the world and speaking about the poor in the United States and rich man go to college and poor man goes to fight. And so, I mean, what you said before about him being a quick study and a master of improv, I think you you see that. And you also see in miniature a kind of the sixties themselves, like the, like the kid who's shocked in the early sixties to find out he has to fight a war by the end of the sixties is drawing much more radical conclusions. No, you're absolutely right, David. And I, I think that that's one of the things that we have to keep right in the face of history is the fact that he evolved, that this was not a, a countercultural hero sprung from, you know, the, the loins of Jesus. This really was somebody, you know, narrow, ignorant, poorly served by education, who really involved in to somebody who began to really understand his times. And that that's absolutely true. And I think one of the ways in which that occurred was during those three and a half years in which he was not able to fight and made his money on college campuses. It was the give and take, the Q&A with college students that he slowly began to understand the larger fabric. And, and by the end of that time, you know, he was a much more evolved human being, uh, religiously, politically, you know, socially, in every kind of a way. But I mean, I, I think that's really and important because as he was evolving, you know, so is America. And that, you know, one of the prime reasons for his acceptance in the seventies was the fact that so much of America had come around to his, his way of thinking about the war. Uh, and also I think that he came to feel admiration for the civil rights activists who really put their lives on the line and also to feel some sorrow ultimately in his betrayal of Malcolm, which, you know, was a terrible thing. So that was the beauty of Ali. And then, and then the terrible pain and irony of him being then shut down, you know, just at a time, uh, it would have been great to hear more from him. Right. No, no. And that, and you, do you ever think about this too? You talked about it being Shakespearean and, or, or whatnot. Uh, like, you ever notice like how Foreman, Frazier, Larry Holmes, these were not big talkers, but they became big talkers in retirement. And while Ali loses his speech, almost like his powers were sent to the people that he vanquished or that they vanquished him. I'd always found that to be almost too cinematic for words as well. I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that out there to you if you ever. That's kind of a beautiful thought. I mean, uh, I mean, you've met Larry Holmes a million times. He's, he's, he's like the funniest guy in any room he's in. And he certainly wasn't that when he was a boxer. 
Yeah, and and think of George Foreman. Oh my God, George—that's the ultimate one. I mean, the the silent hulking brute becomes America's sweetheart. Yeah, I want to ask George. It was the end of an interview, so I, and he he had been very warm and open. And I, I said, "How did he feel that he was an accomplice in the physical destruction of Muhammad Ali? You know, of what he was now." And he said, "You know, I think about." the great war heroes and, you know, how we honor them and see them, you know, take out their glass eye or, you know, (laughs) remove their prosthetic arm. And we can only be grateful that they sacrificed so much for us. And that's the way I feel about Muhammad Ali. I thought, whoa, where did that come from? And I mean, maybe, you know, your idea of uh, Ali transferring, you know, his, his energy and uh, poetics to those he had beaten is part of that. I got to say, my favorite Foreman moment is I interviewed him and I said, what did you think the, what, the first time you learned who Muhammad Ali was? And he said, we were terrified in my poor neighborhood in Houston because the heavyweight champ was a black Muslim. And I said, oh, you didn't like Muslims? And he said, no, we didn't know what Muslims were. We were terrified he was calling himself black. We were Negroes. <laughs> that's wonderful yeah what was it like what was the experience like the first time you ever saw Muhammad Ali or I should say Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. what was your impression well I did not see him alone as you know Um, I had gone I had the reason I had been sent to cover that first Liston fight was the times felt that uh, as did most everybody else that he'd be knocked out in the first round. They didn't want to waste the time of a real reporter. So send the kid from that rewrite. That was me. And so I had yet to meet him. And I went up to the fifth street gym at the same time that the Beatles showed up for a photo op and Ali Rashes clay had not yet arrived so that the five of us were shoved into a deserted dressing room and the door was, was locked. Uh, so I was the fifth Beatle for about 15 minutes, and they were very angry. I mean, they were really not quite <laughs> the Beatles yet, but um, you know, they were they were very angry at being trapped like this. They banged on the walls and cursed, and I I interviewed them. And I asked them what they thought of the fight, and they said, "Oh, you know, that wanker is going to be knocked out in the first round." And they banged and cursed and kicked <laughs> at the door, and then suddenly the door burst open and and the five of us in unison gasped because there before us was the most beautiful creature we had ever seen and probably would ever see. He was big. He was broad. He was glowing. He was laughing. Uh, he was just gorgeous. And we fell silent and he kind of stuck his head in the room and he said, come on, Beatles, let's go make some money. <laughs> and, and then he led them out to the ring. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, not during the broadcast, but, you know, tell your listeners to uh, go to um, YouTube, you know, type in Cassius Clay and the Beatles, and you'll see these pictures. He led them into the ring. Uh, they lined up. He tapped the first one. They all went down like dominoes. They leaped up. They formed a pyramid so that they could reach up 
and pretend to hit his jaw. I mean, if, if I had known that they had never met before, I would have thought it was all choreographed. But, uh, you know, for five or ten minutes, it was just kind of this thrilling uh, little play of the five most famous people on the planet. And then it was over. The Beatles went off to their destiny, and uh, Cassius Clay went on to his. But it's still so vivid in my mind, and of course it's helped by the fact that there are so many wonderful photographs, but this glorious creature framed in the doorway. And I think besides everything else, besides his stand, besides his uh, symbolic power, besides how much he came to mean to individual people, Let's not forget, you know, the the two simple basics. One, he was absolutely gorgeous. He was, you know, just kind of charismatically, breathtakingly beautiful. And two, at a time when it really mattered in the world, he was Mr. Man. He was the heavyweight champion of the world. So here was this beautiful creature who was also the toughest man on the planet, uh, as, as we measured those things in the 60s. And then he stood for so many things that were um, radical, including, you know, radical Islam. And, and that also serves to redefine masculinity, too, because it says, like, to be tough, it's not about being able to kick somebody's butt or shooting somebody in Southeast Asia. Being tough, having courage, can also mean standing up to war. Right. But he had this courage in so many different places through the, you know, the discipline and then the courage of going into a ring half naked to fight, to actually fight, uh, and, and then to stand up against the majority of his own society, which thought that he was wrong, wrong to give up his Christianity, which was the country's religion, wrong to give up his name. You know, he called it a slave name, and this is before Roots came out and and made people understand what that meant, wrong to stand against a war, uh, which, while not popular, still you know, had not tipped in, in its balance, and three, uh, wrong to stand up the rising tide of uh, you know, integration and civil rights, which was sweeping the country. So in, in every way, this most powerful, gorgeous figure was wrong. Uh, he would come to change. The country would come to change. Uh, but he still stood firm. And he, he held on to his principles. And in doing that, you know, he created his most important legacy. Legacies, I would say. One was hope. He gave people hope. And two, he made people brave. And, and no matter how you came to it, whether you came to it as you know, any kind of an outsider or came to it as a, a black youth being oppressed in your society, you came to it you know, as a, a white college student uh, who didn't want to be sent away to die in an illegitimate war, you know, there he was giving up money, you know, facing jail for what he believed in. And I think this was a very powerful lesson and legacy, which stands to this day. Mm. Bob Lipsight, I, I, I can't think of a better way to end than that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And, and I, I'm sorry for your loss. Are you okay? 
Uh, I, Thank you. Are you okay? Is this is this shaking you, or is this like? Well, yeah. I mean, because because you know he has been so much a part of uh, my life for fifty two years, but I you know this is like kind of the high of the grieving process. You know, going yeah. on, you know, talking to people, you know, seeing old friends like you. Uh, I I think that you know in a few days when we move on and the next you know uh, Trump horror. <laughs> uh, hits us uh, and this kind of goes away I'm going to be, feel very sad but right now I think it's a wonderful time you know to celebrate this most important American hey be well I'll talk to you soon Bob talk to you soon Dave Thank you, Bob Lipsite. If people want to learn more about Lipsite and his writing, we're going to have a link at edgeofsportspodcast.com. And now we speak to whip-smart social commentator and sports writer Kavitha Davidson. Muhammad Ali, what, over the course of your sports writing career or just sports consciousness, has he meant to you? So nowadays, I think we see a very sanitized image of what athletes are and, and like, you know, the kind of persona that they portray in the public eye. And obviously, Muhammad Ali totally defied all of that. I think Pablo Torre uh, tweeted something to the effect of Muhammad Ali was the king of not sticking to sports. And for those of us like you and me who cover sports from a political and cultural lens, not sticking to sports is such a rare and beautiful thing to see in athletes. And culturally, what he meant to people who didn't necessarily need to care about sports in order to care about his legacy, uh, it it was just so meaningful. And, And his place in American history, in black history, in Muslim history, in all of these kind of intersecting spaces was really, really rare and unique. Um, I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has written very eloquently also about exactly what it meant to stand in Muhammad Ali's shadow and the legacy that he left for the next generation and generations to come of black activists and black athletes. Um, and, and it was, it, it, it's just, it's, it's a great loss, obviously, but remembering him, I think, has been so meaningful in the last few days to actually go back to this time when athletes could actually have the space and, and speak out in this way, which we don't really see anymore. And that's kind of a sad thing. But the reason that we have the few athletes who can is precisely because of Muhammad Ali. And it's interesting because I don't think athletes had the space then either. He just took it. Right. It wasn't exactly. necessarily space that um, that was afforded him. I mean, have you ever seen the the old tape of of the reporter even like looking at him and being like, I bet you can't keep your mouth shut for five seconds. Try it. Try it. Try it. Right. There's been a little bit of interesting revisionism in the, in the past few days. Yeah, just a little bit. Since he passed. And everyone's kind of had this a little bit sanitized memory of what things were like back then. And everybody always loved Muhammad Ali. No, he, and you know, even in the darker spaces of Twitter today, you can kind of see, um, he, he had to fight for that space, as you said, and probably still would be fighting for that space today if he were still with us. Um, and not, caring about all of these other consequences of standing up for what he believed was right and for taking the stances that he did. It was such a powerful and unique thing for that time or for this time. 
and that's really, you know, I think that that's obviously his his longest legacy uh, that's, that's going to be left with us. But yeah, just I, I think that we we need to kind of go back and look at some of these remembrances and, and say that no, it wasn't really, it wasn't easy, obviously, and it wasn't accepted, and it wasn't, you know, I see a lot of universally beloved figure, Muhammad Ali. Well, after how many decades and after how many different revisions of what actually happened um, and, and how he was actually accepted. And after, of course, losing the ability to speak, which can never be forgotten. That's a really, that's a really difficult thing to kind of try and reconcile is that if he didn't get sick, how would he be accepted by mainstream, particularly white culture? And I don't know if there's an easy answer to that, or there's definitely not a comfortable answer to that. I mean, I think we have an idea, though, because we know he had a commitment to Palestinian rights. There's no way that would be accepted right now or acceptable. He would be demonized for that. And there's no way, especially given the relationship between the United States and the Muslim world, you cannot imagine him being silent about things like drones. And that would have earned him the enmity as well of all kinds of forces. But the thing about him that I think he proved is that courage and bravery are not things you can just sort of take off the shelf and put back. It's like something that you either live or you don't. And he, when he had all his faculties, he was willing to live that. Absolutely. And if you look at the frankness of the language that he used to describe things, um, when he spoke about not wanting to fight in Vietnam, he spoke very directly about white supremacy. uh, And he used those words. And those words, I think, now have become kind of target points for the particularly right and for the people who try to uphold white supremacy, frankly. But, uh, you know, he spoke very directly about the state of black America and the state of America in the rest of the world and imperialism at home and abroad. And he was not afraid to use very specific language to do that. And the media coverage around it, you know, even still, you know, hasn't really evolved in the way that you would hope it it would in order to, you know, properly cover those kinds of things and to give them their due in the way that he did. And I think that that was really, you know, if you just go back and read those statements that he made, like you can't really imagine a public figure saying those things, no matter if they're an athlete or a politician or anything. It was so remarkable, not just for the time, but for, for our time too. I mean, and all, all you really have to do is is imagine someone like the, the same sports writers who are praising Muhammad Ali and are just fulsomely praising Muhammad Ali should really just ask themselves the question, and they won't, but they should ask themselves the question about what if, you know, Serena Williams was asked to meet the troops and she said, no, I'm not going to be part of enslaving the darker peoples of the world by giving any support to the U.S. military. I mean, imagine, or if uh, LeBron James was like, I'm going to go visit a Palestinian refugee camp to assert my commitment against Israeli oppression. I mean, you just think about what the reaction would be. Right. And what those same reporters would say. You've seen some of that actually with Black Lives Matter and with LeBron and Serena wearing the T-shirts and, and identifying with the movement. And you've seen so much of that backlash from something as innocuous as literally wearing a T-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. That's the controversial statement um, that we're dealing with today. So it's, it's not a, you don't even really have to imagine what they would, uh, the way that the mainstream sports media would react to the kind of statements that Ali was making. And especially, you know, given um, the situation in Palestine and Israel, we've seen that as well. I think it was Dwight Howard. I can't really remember. It was Dwight uh, Howard. All he wrote was free Palestine on on an Instagram picture of a blown up house. 
And that was too much. I was sent a photo of a Palestinian and Israeli boy, two boys you know, holding hands. And yeah. he was just inspired by this thing. And that blew up into this whole, you know, Dwight Howard is anti-Semitic, ridiculous controversy. And he was like, no. And then he had to kind of backtrack. And he said, I don't, I don't really know all that's going on there. I just saw these horrible things that I thought was that were happening. And, and, you know, it's just, that's the state of the world that we live in now. And it's really, you know, I wonder what, <laughs> I wonder what Ali would think about how little and how far we haven't come in the decades since. Yeah, not so far for sure. Um, <laughs> I did want to ask you about this piece you're writing for Rolling Stone about CTE and Parkinson's and boxing, because that's been a big subject out there is like, how much do we put on boxing for Ali's Parkinson's? And it's very important as part of the, like the Ali story, because he was never really punched at all until his suspension. And then he comes back and finds out, much to his own surprise, that he had the toughest chin maybe in heavyweight history, yet he didn't have his legs. So that's where you get the rope-a-dope, the idea of letting other boxers just hit you repeatedly. And basically they tire themselves out. And so there's this question of like, okay, that style and the just unbelievable punishment that he took. How much of that do we connect to the Parkinson's? I'm guessing that's what your article's about. Basically, yeah. I mean, the reason I wanted to write about this is because there just isn't a lot of coverage. And I think we can thank the NFL mostly for that. But there also isn't a lot of research, frankly, especially concerning CTE specifically. Parkinson's and CTE are obviously two separate diseases. Both are are undiagnosable. There aren't really diagnostic tools for them uh, that are well-established. And CTE isn't diagnosable in the living. That being said, there isn't enough definitive research out there connecting the two diseases. Parkinson's specifically has a lot of genetic factors in there, but it bears the question. And the point of writing about this and of covering this and continuing to discuss this is hopefully it will lead to more definitive research on this. You know, what we've learned from CTE and what we've learned from Parkinson's is that it's not one big blow uh, to the head that can cause these kinds of degenerative brain diseases. It's, it's the repetitive kind of subconcussive hits and things like that. And in order to really draw that connection, there needs to be a lot more targeted research done, especially within the sporting world. I think that there's this idea that there are certain sports that you just have to kind of accept you're going to have brain damage. And I think that that's not really necessarily an acceptable state of, of being, that if we actually look into these things more, then we can either mitigate them or we can at least educate people more about the dangers they actually face. With Ali specifically, I think that a lot of people point to, you know, I I was actually, I was sitting in a bar a couple of days ago uh, and and there were a lot of older men kind of reminiscing about what Ali meant to them and, and remembering specific fights. And they were pointing to specific fights and they could point to specific hits that they thought caused his Parkinson's. And that's, so indicative of how little knowledge there is about these diseases and these types of diseases. And I think that it's really important to just kind of keep moving the ball forward on that discussion and try to at least gain a little bit more understanding about what place these diseases have in these sports. That, yeah, that's and, and another thing later um, in this show or this week of shows, because we're recording a ton of people this week mm-hmm. um, and we just want to like as tribute to the champ, just release interviews throughout the week of talking about his life and legacy. We're going to be interviewing Bill Siegel, who's the director of the trials of Muhammad Ali. 
um, a movie that I loved. And you mentioned to me in an offhand way, I'm just utterly fascinated by this, that you were at a screening of The Trials of Muhammad Ali at uh, the Jackie, uh, Jackie Robinson Community Center, I believe yes, it's called? Yes, uh, the Community Center at, um, at Jackie Robinson Park on 145th Street in Harlem. And it was just this kind of offhand screening. It wasn't a big deal. There wasn't any media coverage. I think it was the only media who was there. I grew up in Washington Heights, and I lived there at the time, so it wasn't, it wasn't too far for me to go. And I believe Bill was actually there. He answered a lot of questions. It was so striking to me to be in that particular place watching this incredible documentary. There were older African-American viewers there, and it was it was kind of like a church service a little bit because there was a lot of call and response when Muhammad Ali would say things in, in back footage that, you know, really resonated with the audience and, and everything like that. And the questions that were asked, it was so, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't alive. Uh, I wasn't born yet when, you know, Muhammad Ali was at the height of his career. And to watch the time and the place to kind of come back in a couple of, you know, a couple of decades later with this particular audience, it was so powerful and so meaningful. And I think it meant a lot to the filmmakers also who were there to have this particular audience really like have this movie resonate with them because they remember what that was. And, and, and you could see just like looking around, you could see what this movie meant to them and what this person meant to them. And, you know, just the decades of struggle that they've had to contend with. It was a really powerful setting for such a powerful movie. And it, and it is a powerful movie. It's the first one I actually recommend over, when we were kings, as, as brilliant as when we were kings is, mm-hmm. I would say go with trials first. But the last question I wanted to ask you, Kavita, it's one that that I'm I'm certainly very vexed by. You, you see, some people, and I, I try not to be guilty of this, but I can't lie that I think I, I am guilty of this sometimes. Is you ask that question about like who will the new Ali be? Who will walk in Ali's footsteps today? And yet. These aren't the 1960s anymore. Uh, the, there is no Vietnam War draft. We, without question, have our own challenges today, of course, but they're very unique and specific to the 21st century. So I was hoping maybe you could give your thoughts about what would you advise a young athlete who is like, I want to be like Muhammad Ali, but I don't know how. What's step one? What would you say? So I think step one is, know your audience, <laughs> know who you're actually speaking to, because, you know, I think that the major challenge that athletes face who want to have kind of a progressive or social conscience is frankly the money that can be lost from losing your marketability and not catering to a mainstream audience and things like that. And that's just a totally different climate than we were dealing with in the 1960s, obviously. What Muhammad Ali did was he spoke truth to power, as you said, to a very specific sect of the American populace. And he didn't care what the rest of the country or the world thought about what he was saying, because he believed in in the truth of what he was saying. And he knew that the people he was speaking to would believe that as well. I believe it was Derek Rose wore um, an, either an I Can't Breathe or a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Yep, and I Can't Breathe. It, yep. it was I Can't Breathe, right. And uh, the local Chicago press kind of excoriated him for that. And in response to that, I think one of them, I think one of them said, you're alienating your fans or, you know, what is, what is a young 
kid growing up in Chicago going to think of that? And in response to that, I basically wrote a column saying, Derek Rose isn't talking to you. <laughs> He's not wearing that T-shirt for white dude working at CSN trying to figure out what the message of his T-shirt is. He's writing it for the little kids on you know the north and south side that are dealing with this kind of violence every day. So I think that for an athlete today, just knowing that if you want to spread these messages and you're not going to reach everybody with them, obviously, knowing your audience is so important to that. And then, you know, it, it's really kind of a simple way to look at it. But unfortunately, the more successful an athlete you are, I think the more space you kind of have to be able to navigate between social messaging and things like that. So that's really, unfortunately, I think the state of things is that if you produce on the court, then you have a little bit more of a leeway to be who you are and to give your own personality and whatnot. LeBron's actually, I think, been one of the better examples, you know, as muted as it has been. He's been among the more outspoken of the big name athletes about some of these issues. And I think that that's not in small part due to the fact that he's LeBron and he can do that. Serena Williams, as you mentioned, has spoken very much about equal pay for women, for example. And obviously, Venus was the one who who kind of spearheaded equal pay throughout all the major tournaments. And I don't think that a lower level athlete could get away with some of that stuff. So it's a really hard question to answer. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the state of things now is that everyone's kind of worried about their public image and not their place in society or in, in history necessarily in that same way. And looking to Muhammad Ali, I think that what we can get from him is that he doesn't care about any of that. And that was just what was so meaningful about him. Wow. Uh, Beautifully said, Kavitha. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Can I dance? Is the Pope a Catholic? (laughs) (laughs) This here's the story of Cassius Clay. So that's it for today. Thank you, Bob Lipsight. Thank you, Kavitha Davidson. Remember, this is a special week of coverage, and we'll be dropping interviews about Muhammad Ali all week. You can subscribe to the show at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your podcast app of choice. The last show, we, we spoke to Chuck D. of Public Enemy about the influence of Muhammad Ali on his music and on hip-hop. You can hear all the back episodes of Edge of Sports at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Follow me on social media at Edge of Sports. Email the show at edgeofsports at slate.com. We're going to end the show this week with a song that I'm guessing you've never heard by Johnny Wakelin. It's called Muhammad Ali, Black Superman. He says, I'm the greatest the world's ever seen The heavyweight champion Who came back again My face is so pretty You don't see a scar Which proves I'm the king Of the ring by far Sing Muhammad Muhammad Ali He floats like a butterfly Stings like a bee Muhammad 
Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Love to the champ.